let's have a word of prayer. Uh, our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the technology that makes this possible. Uh, but Lord, there's no substitution for human relationships, uh, but above all, no substitution for the relationship that we have with you through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now, even by your spirit, that uh, the words that we say this day would be for the good of your people, but above all, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's really good to have uh, Gerald Bray, a research professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School, although right now he is in his home in Cambridge, England, and uh, Chuck Collins, uh, a retired priest and uh, is uh, in Birmingham now with us to start a new ministry initiative, the Center for Reformation Anglicanism. And today I'm hoping that we can talk about uh, communion in time of COVID-19, and not just the Lord's Supper communion, but what is... What does it look like to be the church right now and um, in any perspective that y'all might have uh, on, uh, on that? But Gerald, you're over there in the thick of it. England's a little bit worse than Birmingham, Alabama. So tell us a little bit about what does church look like, if anything at all, in Cambridge? All the churches are closed um, and they're going to stay that way. Um, the, the, the Roman Catholic primate uh, of England asked the government last week to allow Catholic churches to open uh, while other places of worship remain shut because he said that Catholics need to go to the building. You know that the building is important for them and, and for both, not just for private prayer, but also to receive communion from the priest in small numbers. Well, of course, it didn't go down very well um, you know, with the general public, um, because especially as he unfortunately said, we need our buildings more than Pentecostals and Muslims need theirs. Wow. So that wasn't really the thing to say. And, um, you know, that's just been dismissed. And so as far as we know, um, there's a possibility that churches may be allowed to open on the 5th of July, uh, possibly. But, but that's as far as it goes. And what about uh, Church of England parishes uh, there in Cambridge? Are they, are they doing anything? Oh, yes. I mean, the parishes, are, are, they've all gone, well, I say all, but a lot of them have gone online. And uh, in fact, the online take-up has been greater than regular Sunday attendance. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how that's all measured. I don't, I'm not very tech savvy, so I don't know how they measure these things. Um, but they say that particularly young people, sort of 18 to 30, apparently one in three in the country has, has tuned into online worship, mm -hmm. which is a very high percentage. And, um, you know, they're thinking that th this, is, this is reaching them in their mode. You see, they wouldn't come to a, a church wow. building, but they're very happy to, to go online. And I have to say... I mean, I listen to the services at the Advent on Sunday afternoon or whenever I decide to switch on. <laughs> well, the trouble is, you see, you have it at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning, which is for me is three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And I'm quite often out at that time. But when I come back, you know, a couple of hours later, I can just go in and click in and get it live, but not live. If you see right. what I mean. Sure hours later but i mean i wouldn't be able to do that otherwise so i can feel i'm in touch with you in a way that i wouldn't normally be you know that's one of the curious things about it yeah i wonder if that puts a hand on the pulse of the opportunity that this provides for the church oh i think so i mean because you really don't know who's listening mm -hmm. um you you know and all kinds of people uh, tune in and you don't know who they are or where they're coming from or anything. And, um, you know, I, I, yes, I, I, I think it's a very good opportunity. I think the statistic that I read was that 25% of all uh, of the UK is tuning in uh, to some kind of, uh, of service. And that, I don't know how, what, what, what that number would be if they all showed up at a, at a church, but it, it's, it far exceeds what is happening before what had happened before COVID. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the number of people who actually have a, a living connection with a church, you know, with a church building is certainly no more than 10%. Mm -hmm. 
And on an average Sunday, well, we don't know, but it could be like two or three percent, you know, actually going to church on a Sunday. So for 25 percent to be tuning in is is huge. Mm. I mean, and and very good. You know, it's wonderful. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's been uh, true here in the United States. I can only speak for the Advent, but we have um, many more people tuning in uh, through our streaming service than we would have normally in person. And we can also see where they are uh, throughout the world. And so we have folks tuning in on every continent except for South America and Antarctica. And mm -hmm. I'm working with our communications people to figure out how we can break into the South American market. Yeah, that's surprising. You think there'd be at least one person there somewhere. I, we're, we're just an unknown commodity <laughs> in South America. Uh, and then and Antarctica of all places, I know. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that it is, it is a remarkable opportunity. And, and I wonder that, you know, if, if this begins to shape the church uh, more than we're willing to admit, I think that a lot of churches now understand that when we go back, whenever that's going to be, there was a thought that, oh, we'll just have a great big Easter celebration and, and we'll just go back to doing things the way that we were doing them before. And now everybody is realizing that's simply not going to be true. One, we're not all going to be able to come back at once. And then two, um, even those churches that weren't streaming their service before now are going to continue streaming their service. And the expectation being that, you know, in Birmingham, if you wanted to to try out a church, you would go and visit it. And now you'll just simply tune into the stream uh, to check it out. And that would be put on par with actually attending the church. So I'm curious to see uh, how many people will just, um, you have more people attending via technology, but maybe even fewer people coming in person because even those who came in person before may say, you know, I, I just like watching church with a cup of coffee better than in my pajamas than, than being there in person. Yeah, I think, I think that's very likely. I, I, I have a, a slight sort of hesitation in that my, one of my fears is that church will become a bit like NPR, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the sense that a lot of people tune in and, and, and listen to it, but they have to have fundraisers all the time because people don't actually contribute. And that's the other thing. I mean, you know, if, if you go to the church physically, um, you're invited to make a, a financial contribution. And, uh, and that's a, 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 and obviously it's an integral part of the, of, of the church, because if you don't, the church doesn't survive. And whereas it's very easy just to, you know, flick a switch and tune in uh, online, but it doesn't actually involve any commitment. Uh, on the person on the part of the person who who tunes in and so I this is something that you know I think really has to be considered especially because you know who's you wait well, you can pinpoint who's listening in a way but you can't identify them as people so that's the problem I mean you know that you know say 10,000 people in Homewood are listening to your service but you don't know which 10,000 they are Right. Um, uh, you know, and you can't sort of go out, reach to them and, and say, look, would you mind making a contribution? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's going to be a, a, an issue um, and, and all, anything to do with membership and things like that, because, uh, you know, once you do that, you're, you're moving to another level of community. Uh, I mean, I can sit here and listen to people, you know, the other side of the world, and it's very nice. But, but I'm kind of eavesdropping on their community. I'm not really part of it, um, which is fine. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a wrong thing, but we have to watch to make sure that that doesn't become the norm, um, you know, because the, it, things will fold up if it does. Now, Chuck, you came from, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chuck. Well, I was just wondering if you're feeling from the folks at the Advent a clamoring for uh, the times that you can be together in the future. Um, it, I, I guess the people that I've been talking to are really anxious about coming together again and being together again. And, um, and that's not the peripheral folks that, right. that have been tuning in because they can. 
Right. But uh, do you feel that? Yeah, in fact, that was along the lines of the question I was going to ask you. You know, your last tour of duty was in a congregation with a large percentage of retirees. And whether or not that's going to prolong the lack of physical gathering at at the church that you served uh, out west. And um, so I think that, yeah, there's going to be a particular demographic at the Advent who is not going to gather together. And I think that really what they want is some sense of personal contact. Definitely. And as we begin to look at what it would look like for us to come back together, uh, not to be crass, but the, the product that we could make and all of the hassle of getting people into the space and getting people out and taking reservations and doing the deep cleaning that needs to be done to keep people safe. I don't know that it's worth coming downtown for. Mm-hmm. But are there other ways that we can gather people together for the opportunity to interact uh, beyond your household, uh, around the word, especially that's, that's really what we're, we're looking at because right now I think one of the questions is, uh, you know, and I've, the clergy that I've run into and talked about this, they either, um, are completely lost and don't know what to do because they have a very high view of their ordination along the lines of what you were talking about, Gerald, of mm-hmm. well, if I'm not administering the sacrament then what good am I? Right. Say, do you want me to answer that? Um, but then you also have uh, clergy who, um, it turns out they weren't doing anything at all. And, and so they just as soon keep doing this. If all they have to do is to plop down in front of a screen and, and have a, a little talk, uh, they're, they're, happy. they're happy to do that. And, and the conversations that I've been having, the question comes up, how important is physical gathering to being the church? Well, yeah. uh, go ahead. Stop, go ahead. I was just thinking about our community back in Phoenix and uh, just um, how they have been in a way paralyzed because they're a Eucharistically centered community where um, they have not known what to do with that. And um, because of that, um, it has forced them into a, a sense of community that they would probably never have experienced otherwise. Uh, the phone calls that are ongoing all the time now, and, and there's a formal way for them to do that and to keep in touch with the, the folks that may not otherwise have contact. Um, I think that's all been great. And, and I see that going on at the Advent as well. I, I think there's a a sense of community and now an appreciation, a new appreciation for the kind of community that there can be when we get together again. And so I trust that for the folks at the Advent and for our, our people back home. I, I think we've learned some things. I, I think there'll be a new appreciation. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. You know that, um, I mean, I think of my own church here in Cambridge where, um, I mean, I, I left Birmingham in, in uh, March to come back uh, and I was hoping to be back in Birmingham uh, in April. I mean, I should have been back there, but of course I couldn't go. And so I now it's nine or 10 weeks that I, I went to church once. The first Sunday when I got back, the church was still open. So I went, and I haven't been able to go since. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually miss it a lot, you know, and um, uh, and sort of want to, want to go back. It's strange because I mean I spend a, you know a good portion of the year in a, in in Birmingham in Alabama, when obviously I'm not in my church here. Um, but I don't particularly miss it. <laughs> I mean, I do in a way if I stop to think about it, but I suppose I've got other things to do. I mean, I go to, you know, to the Advent and I have other uh, resources. Um, so I'm not thinking about it all the time. But but now, I mean, I walk past, you know, a, a shut church uh, s- several times a week and, and, and just want to go in and I can't. Mm. Um, and, and so, it, it, you know, it gives that that sort of longing. Mm. But what I do think, and it is very important and, and, and very good, is that this is a wonderful opportunity for the ministry of the word. Because, you know, reading reading the scriptures, praying online and, and preaching, um, I mean, this is perfect. 
and 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 people are willing to listen and they're able to listen and of course the great thing about you know having pause buttons and things like that is that you can listen at your own pace right um and and you can repeat it because very often i mean you go to church and you hear somebody give a talk a sermon or whatever and you know well i mean it depends what they who they are and how they speak and so on but a lot of it just goes in one ear and out the other you know people well people don't have the the skill to to be able to retain you know an awful lot and it's, if it's a complicated subject or something like that i mean how many people apart from students are used to taking notes uh, <laughs> you know it doesn't happen but if you if you have it on on video or online and then you can go back over it and say well i i missed that bit you know so you go back and listen i think in that way it could be you know um a deeper uh, a deeper hearing and and i would encourage that i think you know that I, when you start your services on sunday you could always almost say that those of you who are listening online you know if there's something you miss or you want to hear again remember you can always you know it's there you can go back and and, and do that um and a lot of people would i do I mean, you know, sometimes I just either don't get it or I'm distracted or something like that. And then I think, well, what was that they said? And I go back and listen again. And, um, you know, that's a great, great blessing if you know how to use the resources that you've got rather than complain about what, what you can't have. Mm, right. <laughs> you know. Um, you know, one bishop uh, wrote recently that this is especially difficult for Anglicans because we're Eucharistically centered worshiping communities. And uh, I sort of chuckled because the Advent doesn't see itself as a Eucharistically centered community, but a word centered community. Uh -huh. And, um, and we have enough perspective to know that, you know, objectively speaking, there are a lot of other Christians, even Anglicans, who actually haven't missed a communion, you know, they might take it once a quarter. And so they're still on schedule to being able to gather together and, and have the Lord's right. Supper together. Right. So we, we don't have a lot of people clamoring for communion. Um, but I am appreciative of the fact that it has brought about uh, a lot of conversation around um, a proper understanding of, uh, of Holy Communion and its place in the life of the church. And so I've actually been uh, really... Um, supportive of some of what the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church and our own bishop here in Alabama have written, saying, look, you really should just be using morning prayer and, mm -hmm. uh, and not um, celebrating the Eucharist and simply having people gaze upon it. But I've noticed that even in other quarters, the Anglican Church in North America, I have some dear brothers who are rectors there who are thoroughgoing evangelicals and yet are doing the same thing of of, of having communion, showing people the elements, they partake of themselves and then ask everyone else to join in in a prayer of how we spiritually commune with Jesus. Now, in some sense, we, we haven't, this isn't the first time we've been here. There's a lot of history that has preceded us, especially around uh, the plague. But I'd love to hear both of your observations on this sort of understanding of the Lord's Supper in times of COVID and uh, Gerald, I know that you could bring some historical perspective to this as to how maybe the Church of England responded to it in times of plague or even with the Spanish flu. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, of course, in the Middle Ages, you know, in the Black Death in the 14th century, um, a huge percentage of the population died. Um, and indeed, a lot of clergy. The, the 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 clergy suffered more than than most, you know, on a professional basis because they stayed behind to minister to the sick. So they didn't have any idea about hygiene or anything like that. But uh, some people think. I mean, this is controversial, but they think that the 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 cup was withdrawn from the laity at that time. Um, you know, for this reason, people were too afraid to 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 take of it, uh, and of course, then it became justified uh, theologically. And it wasn't until the Reformation that the cup was restored. But then, at that time, um, communion was only celebrated three or four times a year in most churches. I mean, the average Sunday service was not communion. Um, so, 
people didn't miss it that much, you, you, you know, at that time. And it's interesting because when you mentioned this, this the other day, you know, to come on to Zoom, I went on my bookshelf and pulled out these huge volumes that I have here. I'll, I'll try and lift it up. And so I don't know, can you see it? Uh, if I hold it up, National Prayers. Yes. <laughs> National Prayers, Special Worship Since the Reformation. And in this, for... 1665, the Great Plague in London, um, what they did was they issued decrees and they got the clergy to read the decrees from the pulpits on Sundays. And it was to have national days of fasting uh, for the removal of the plague. But of course, the problem obviously was that you couldn't communicate this kind of thing unless you went to church because there was no other means of, of doing this. Right. But they, they did um, print out a lot. They, um, they printed out uh, uh, huge numbers of um, uh, service sheets and things like that and distributed them uh, you know, to the population so that those who didn't go to church were nevertheless there. Um, but in 1665, uh, I'm just uh, reading this here. Um, it said the the um, uh, Friday prayers were still to be observed, but it said nevertheless many Anglican clergy fled London during the outbreak, and dissenting ministers preached in some of the city churches, because that was just a few years after the Great Ejection. You know when the not the Puritan ministers were thrown out, but a lot of them came back. They, they went back to the churches and preached during the plague when the conforming ministers fled for their lives, um, <laughs> which was, you know, not, not perhaps the best possible example. Um, and then there was another, I've got, an, I, I've got several volumes of this, you see. I mean, uh, there's, another, there's another volume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but this is about the cholera outbreak in 1832. Um, when actually what happened was that there, there was a tremendous popular pressure. Uh, you know, the people demanded um, church services for, uh, you know, relief from the plague, to pray for the plague to be taken away. And uh, government at the time was very difficult because, of course, by then people were beginning to realize that plague and, and this, it was a medical problem. It wasn't, you know, that you could just pray it away. Um, and, and it had to be sort of dealt with medically. And, of course, part of the medical solution was isolation. And so that went against, you know, the popular demand. And there was huge uh, debates about this as, you know, could people, should people come together to pray that the plague should, the, the cholera epidemic should be should be lifted? Because if they did come together, cholera is highly contagious, um, you know, that would be spreading the disease. So in 1832, there was a, there, there was a real sort of, you know, toing and froing over that. So that's, I mean, relatively recently. I mean, it's not, you know, it's within the last 200 years. And, and until modern hygiene, uh, of course, you know, was understood, um, people, <laughs> well, they were stuck. They didn't really know what they're going to do. And I think for us, I mean, the great, the thing which has saved us, and this is true for like the Spanish flu in 1919, back then, I mean, and even in our lifetime, I mean, all of us can remember when what we're doing now would have been impossible. Right. You know, I mean, it's only in the last, what, 10, 15, 20 years 25 years maybe that that this kind of technology has developed and and that we can communicate in this way um, and that we're much less dependent now on getting together physically um, than we ever were before mm -hmm. uh, you know so in a sense I think from the point of view of fighting a disease that's actually a blessing you know, because like over, like right now over Zoom, we can pray together, you know, and as if we're in the next room. In fact, we're thousands of miles apart. Um, so, you know, even even the, the, the COVID-19 virus is not capable of going that far. And, um, you know, but it doesn't prevent us 
from from coming closer to God. Uh, I think when it comes to the, the way in which we do things, I mean, the, the sacramental life and the Eucharist and so on, well, we just have to accept that that, you know, for the time being, that's not possible. But I take comfort from this because you look at the New Testament, you know, and say the Apostle Paul wandering around. I mean, you know, his great sort of journey to Rome uh, across the Mediterranean. I mean, how many months did that take, you know, when he was shipwrecked and so on? I mean, there's no mention of any kind of sacramental thing, you know, the Eucharist and that. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he did get together with people, you know, from time to time and place to place. But that's certainly not the focal point of the uh, of what was going on. And, um, you know, when he was in prison in Rome and so on, he doesn't write to people to say, oh, I miss the Eucharist. Um, and that wasn't because he didn't appreciate it. Right. You know, it wasn't that. I mean, it wasn't that he didn't understand because, he, you know, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he gave very detailed description of what should be done and so on. But his faith and his and his commitment was bigger than that, and it, it could adapt to circumstances. I mean, they were circumstances that he didn't invite, um, you know, and he wouldn't say that this should be the norm or anything like this. Um, but, you know, he said, I've learned in all things to be content, um, you know, to, to, to adapt to the circumstances and so on. And I think this is what we have to learn again. You see, we're... We've, we've had things too easy. Um, you know, we, we think we can, we can just do what we want to do as we want to do it, when we want to do it. And we've had a, we've had a very easy life because apart from, you know, some very exceptional cases, I mean, nobody uh, in, our, in our Western world has actually suffered anything very serious for 75 years. I mean, since the end of the Second World War, and even then, um, you know, unless you were actually on the battlefield, you you didn't really feel it very much. So we we haven't we haven't had this. You know, this is a new thing, and to suddenly be locked up in your own house, um, you know, for weeks on end, and uh, and and so on, is is a shock to the system. Right, but. We're, we are being forced back on our own resources in a way that for most of humanity, for most of human history, has been more or less the norm. Right. You know, we're the ones who've led this exceptional life um, and, you know, having all, all these opportunities and so on. Yeah. And, and to be told overnight, sorry, you can't leave your front, you know, you can't leave your property and you can't talk to your neighbors and so on. Um, I mean, to us is a huge shock, but it brings, it makes us think again. We have to go back and say, well, who am I? What am I doing here? What are my values in life? Yeah. Um, I mean, if I were stranded on a desert island, how would I survive? And we're not going to be stranded on a desert island in the physical sense, but all of us are stranded on a desert island in our own home, in effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might as, well, might as well be on a desert island. <laughs> right. Gerald, one of the things that's interesting about the American scene that maybe also in England uh, is, is for, for me to observe Anglican clergy who are doing this internet Eucharist that, that, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Andrew was referring to a minute ago, mm -hmm. by, by which they, they do a private mass mm -hmm. and, and, it's, and it's televised over the internet. And then they raise the, the host. And it was enough uh, in their minds, in, in their theology, for people to look on that and, and gaze upon it uh, and and the real presence of Christ was communicated through that. It, and, and it strikes me me as, as being very medieval. Yeah, it, it is. It, and the people would go in the Middle Ages. They would attend church on Sundays. They would see the priest elevate the host. And it was enough just to be there in the presence of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's theater rather than participation. And um, you know, the whole, well, the New Testament emphasis, but the whole Reformation emphasis is participation. Mm 
I mean, that's why, um, uh, you know, you have to, uh, why they translated from Latin into the vernacular so that people could actually understand what was going on. That's why we have a prayer book, because people were asked to participate. Um, I remember a few years ago, um, it was 1999, it was the what, 450th anniversary of the first English prayer book. And um, we, we had a celebration in, 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 for this occasion in Birmingham, you see. And so I, I, I was the only person around at the time who actually knew anything about the 1549 prayer book. So, <laughs> or... Well, in the sense that I'd actually used it, uh, you know, taught, like not only taught it in class, but actually walked through it with students. Mm -hmm. And so I knew how to do it, you know, where to stand and how to do it and everything else. And the thing that shocked everybody uh, was that in the 1549 prayer book, the first English language uh, communion service, mm -hmm the congregation was invited to get out of their seats or wherever they were and to come and crowd round the table. Mm. You know, I mean, they, they, they were actually sort of, sort of uh, densely, like today when somebody gets ordained, you know, everybody in creation goes and tries to lay hands on them. It's like a football scrum. It was like that, <laughs> you know, sort of, sort of push in together, you know, and, and, and so on. And that's what is, what was asked of them and you see what it taught people I remember it was very interesting because what it taught people was people today who look back on that didn't really understand what was happening then and what a huge difference it was you see they they thought that you know 16th century it's it's going to be well as you say medieval you know, a pantomime that they see the priest do. But in fact, it's the opposite. I mean, they went uh, very much the other way. And it was later on that the church, in, you know, in, in the name of decorum and decency and things like that, gradually sort of, you know, fenced off the table, put the rails there and, and pushed people back. Mm -hmm. So it was came as a shock to to some to see that the, the, the more primitive they were, uh, the more un-Anglican, supposedly, they were, <laughs> or what they thought of as being Anglican, um, wasn't, wasn't what it was all about at all. Well, Gerald, what you're saying um, won't resonate at all amongst North American Anglicans who have no collective memory before 1979. That's it. And, and so it, what historical perspective they would articulate is preferential and uh and and they're not they're not you know it there's not even an attempt to go back and ask the question well how did the church handle this during times of plague and the closest thing that i could find was uh, the bishop of bath and wells in the 14th century a bishop by the name of rafe uh-huh and of course chuck to your point communion wasn't the issue it was what sacraments day in, day out did Christians need? And the two that he zoned in were on were confession of sin, penance, and, and last rites, yeah. anointing of the sick. And, and it was just so dire that Bishop Rafe said, when it comes to confession, confess to anyone, even a woman was his line. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and he actually allowed deacons to celebrate the mass. Yeah, uh, but of course, for him, that had less of a practical effect on the people. And I'm just thinking out loud about this, but I think it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be as much opposition to doing a medieval sort of practice of gazing on the elements. But if our people were to do communion in their own homes mm. as a family, it would be the end of the world. And, yeah. I, and I'm not advocating that either, but I, I just think that, that right now we're finding out that even being a Eucharistically centered denomination, whether that be the ACNA or the Episcopal Church, we really don't know what we believe about communion, except we have a very high understanding of clericalism. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I think that's totally true, Andrew. And, and I think that comes with 1928 prayer book and 1979 prayer book. We, we've changed in our lifetime. Well, in Gerald's in my lifetime. And uh, we, we have uh, really made a turn to become Eucharistically centered rather than word centered. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's, if there's a chance of an opportunity to rediscover Thomas Cramner in the midst of this and 1552 and 1662 in the midst of this and, and the, uh, the importance of ministry of the word and, and then how sacraments fit into that as the primary means of communicating grace, I, I would uh, celebrate that opportunity. I would hope, hope excuse me. Yeah, I, I, I quite agree. And I think uh, you mentioned the prayer books. You see, if you go back to 1662 and to things like that, um, what you find in the service of Holy Communion, there's several pages in the middle where the priest stands up and announces that he's going to celebrate in a few weeks' time. Mm-hmm. And there's this intense preparation. You know, the, the people are called to prepare. And mm-hmm. until quite recently, I know in Scotland, in the Church of Scotland, this was, this was done. Um, you know, that I, I don't know what, what's happening now, but um, uh, you would have a, a week or two beforehand, what they call the communion season. And that would be a time when people would come to church and prepare to receive communion, and they would be challenged, uh, you know, on this. And even uh, much more recently uh, in, in, uh, in Anglican circles, I mean, someone like Charles Simeon, for example, um, you know, the great early 19th century preacher was actually converted through being preparing himself for communion because he realized that he wasn't worthy, um, you know, and he, he, was, he was obliged to prepare himself to receive. And it was through that process of working it through that, um, you know, that he gave his life to Christ because he was challenged. And I wonder whether, you know, that's something we can think about that we can't come together in the Eucharist right now in the way that we're used to doing, but what's to stop us from preparing our hearts for that, you know, to, to look for that, to look for, for the time when we come together again um, and uh, that share, because I mean, communion, the very name communion implies plurality. You, you can't do it on your own. It's an abuse to to try to do it on your own. Um, I mean, you can say we're always doing it with God. Well, of course you are. But, uh, you know, we are the body of Christ. We are called together. And and the the picture in the New Testament is that. We come together and celebrate together. But, you know, Paul also tells people, you know, come prepared. Um, You you know, it's not a party. It's not not a sort of... um, you know, feed the hungry meal kind of thing. Um, it's something that you need to be spiritually prepared for. And we've lost that um, in, in the modern church. I mean, you turn, you, you turn up to church on Sunday and it's kind of there, um, you know, more or less laid on automatically. And the result is that people don't think about it properly. Um, you know, very few people that I know would deliberately not receive on a Sunday because they felt they weren't ready for it. Mm-hmm. You know, they hadn't prepared properly. Mm-hmm. I do know some people who won't receive more than once on a Sunday. That's another issue. Um, but, um, you know, they, if you just turn up on a Sunday in a church somewhere and it, it's a Eucharist and, you, you know, you, you take part, I mean, how many of us have really thought this through beforehand and or heard any ever heard anybody encourage anybody to do that you know mm-hmm. <laughs> even mention the possibility so i i think this is something that that perhaps this is a time when you know we can be thinking about this again um you know something that we can't do immediately for circumstances beyond our control but we can prepare um, and, and, you know, there's nothing to stop us from repenting of our sins and, 
uh, you, you know, confessing and and, uh, and and generally getting hungry for God. Yeah, I, uh, I wonder historically, Gerald, if you would consider this and and Chuck, you especially pastorally as a as a parish priest. It's a particularly American problem of of its that that transcends Anglicanism. Of it's really about me and God, and so you can go to a large mega church that pulls out all the stops and creates this huge experience uh, where you commune with God and you've not really spoken to anyone else in the building and you just leave and go home afterwards. But in Anglicanism, it's manifested itself in that communion is a very personal thing, which of course it is, but it's almost to the exclusion of the horizontal nature of the football scrum that you talked about, Mm. uh, Gerald coming forward. And I know that I've, uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say upset people, but I know people who have been concerned with me because they've seen me not receive in a service. Um, and normally that's because there's someone else in the service that, that I need to reconcile with. Um, right. and, uh, and they're sort of shocked by that, that they've never really considered who it is that they're going to the table with. No, that's right. And, and so of course, historically, it, where did that change? And, and Chuck, I'd be interested in your experience pastorally, how, if that shift had already taken place or, and, and how we've actually encouraged that shift. Hmm. I hmm. think you're talking about discerning the body. Isn't, isn't that what St. Paul is getting at in first Corinthians? And, yes. And, and so I, I think it's a matter of, of uh, being aware of, of what we're doing with God, but also how that affects the community around us and, and our relationship with, with those that we come to worship with mm-hmm. and, and where that changed. I, I, I don't know, Andrew, I, I think we've lost sight of uh, the, the basic understanding of what happens in the Eucharist. And I, and I would love for us to get back to the idea of it being word centered. You know, I was just reading a couple days ago when I was thinking about our time together, uh, the uh, the current passage from uh, Cramner's um, the the commonplaces where he talks about the sacraments being uh, very powerful to Cramner because it involves all the senses, right. but it's the Word of God communicated uh, that's communicated in morning and evening prayer. But it's it's so it's the same word. It's Jesus, but but now through the sacraments, baptism and holy communion, we we experience that word fully in in all of our senses. And so there's a there's a very specialness I think in terms of the the uh, Eucharist for Cramner um, that that is not there w- without the holy communion service. Um, but, uh, but I think that that could only make us long for that opportunity and time when we can get together in a healthy way to celebrate communion together and, and, and celebrate the fact that it's, it's a, uh, a bond for the, the unification of the body. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's probably, you can't really probably, uh, fix a date as to when that sense was lost because it would have been a gradual thing over time you know i think that it, but in the in the course of the 19th century i would say um you you know for various reasons that gradually diminished um and well certainly in my lifetime um you know it's it's virtually disappeared and uh, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to think what you're talking, you know, if I can, well, I can remember when I was a child back in the 1950s, 1960s, yes, I mean, there, the, you know, there was that sense, um, you know, of awe and reverence, and this is not something you do lightly. And, um, and I, think, I think maybe I remember it as a child because I, I realized I had to I had to prepare for confirmation, you know that I that there was something missing that I couldn't just go and take part, receive, and in my own parish here in Cambridge, when 
uh, you know, it was suggested that that children, small children, should be uh, allowed to take the, the the Eucharist along with everybody else. There was huge objection from the parish, from people in the parish, who didn't have any idea about the theology. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, say that, but they they felt like they, they felt this, you know, they say if you don't know what you're doing. And, and if you're not taking it seriously, if it's just, you know, something that you do because it's done, um, that's wrong. And they could see that clearly when it came to small children, but they couldn't see it so clearly when it came to themselves. <laughs> and, but, and yet, you know, Jesus says, except you become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, there is that sense and maybe that's what, we have to lose, you know, that this sense that we've got, we've got over all that. Um, and, and it's a, a funny sort of pride in a way, um, you, you know, that we don't have to go back to the, back to the beginning and, and remember that, um, you know, we are not worthy. I mean, one of the things I like about Roman Catholic service, although it's very bad, use of scripture exegesis and so on it's when they say you know i'm not worthy that you should come under my roof speak but the word and my soul shall be healed you know when uh, they take the, the 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 words of the centurion who wants his daughter to be healed and tells jesus don't come to my house um because i'm not worthy um and they they take that and apply it to the individual you know that uh, the expression of humility and so on and you could say well that's not really the right way to use that verse of scripture but the sentiment behind it this feeling that i'm not worthy mm-hmm. um it, you you know that, that i have to recognize this that this is um uh, th- this is a privilege this is this is a, a grace uh which is given by god uh, which I don't deserve. Mm. And I think too many of us think we're doing, you know, God's quite lucky to have us, really. <laughs> yeah, and I, I hope that the folks that are listening to this or watching this understand, you know, it's not as if at least the clergy at the Advent are having private masses in their homes and enjoying the, the Lord's Supper while, while they're not. Uh, we're, we're in it together. And um, as we as we wrap up, I wonder, you know, Chuck and Gerald, if, if y'all have any words uh, for Christians who might be longing uh, for that sort of communion, uh, but also to clergy who are just so ill-formed, they, they really don't know what to do right now. Mm-hmm. I loved uh, Gerald's reminder a minute ago about the uh, importance of seeing the Holy Communion, but the but the sacraments in general, in terms of union with Christ and the whole idea of being in Christ and being joined with Christ into God uh, in a, the third chapter of Colossians. And, and, and living from that is something that has not been deprived uh, of us uh, in this time of COVID. We, we, uh, we can uh, enjoy that relationship with God every bit as fully as, as before. And, and I think Holy Communion reconnects us and, and unites us in a very special way. And we'll get back there when we can experience that. But, but in the meantime, I, I think in our daily times of prayer and Bible study and, and the fellowship that we have on phone and by internet, um, we are not uh, neglecting the, the most important uh, thing that God has given us, and that's the union that we can have as Christians with with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I would say too that um, one of the consolations we 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 should look for is in reading the Scriptures, and um, particularly some of the Psalms. Um, I mean, I've been thinking a lot recently about Psalm 137. You know, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. I mean, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And I mean, these were people who'd lost everything. They're people in in, in despair as far as the world is concerned. Um, you know, and, and yet they, they, they turned to God and they, they were honest. Um, they didn't pretend that everything was going fine. Um, you know, uh, they said, well, something terrible has happened. Um, you know, we, we feel very bad. And yet 
we can learn from this, you know, or read it in the Lamentations. I mean, Jeremiah, you know, the, the uh, how the city has, has uh, you know, has been destroyed and so on. But then you you look and um, you know, in the middle of these lamentations, all of a sudden, you know, the the the, the poet says, uh, "But your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness." And of course, it's that verse that we've taken out and made a made a hymn out of. Right. It is thy faithfulness, uh, and so on, and uh, and things like this. You see, and we can we can get a lot out of this. That you know, God's people have been in tough situations before, far tougher than anything we're being put through. And you know, they have they they have survived, and their witness is there. Uh, you know, because I cried to the Lord in, in, in my distress, you know, oh Lord, you, you know, where are you? And um, asking the, these very deep questions. I mean, look at Job, mm. the story of Job, um, you know, and, and asking very deep questions. And this is a time um, for that to happen. Um, and I, I think, you know, we... we um, but we walk through the desert, you know, we need to treat it as like a well. I mean, realize that there, you know, there are blessings which can be found uh, if we know where to look for them. Amen. Uh, well, dear brothers, thank you so much uh, for your wisdom. And uh, anything that we said wrong, I trust the Holy Spirit will uh, immediately dispel in the minds of those who tuned in uh, but uh, thank you thank you for thinking of us thank you for for, for organizing this and I, I hope that the rest of your day and the rest of your week uh you know is a blessing to you and to everyone uh, god bless you gerald Chuck, gerald they travel you. to you too thank you so much thank you well you'll see me you'll i'll be back in birmingham in august wonderful I, whether whether you'll see me or not will depend on on you know what the virus does but uh but i'll be there very good <laughs> okay <laughs> bye -bye. You. have a good day all right bye bye